Welcome to the Ben and Tony podcast, and today we were joined by none other than Brandon Wennard, founding partner of BroBible.com. One lesser known fact about Brandon was that at the very beginning of his career, he actually spent time writing a book with Hunter S. Thompson's widow, Anita. Fascinating to speak about that and the impact that that had on him. And then, of course, was the inception of Bro Bible, one of the leading publications for America's young men as the target audience. We spoke to Brandon's sense of responsibility and stewardship that comes with writing a publication for America's young people, what bro means today, and how that may have changed over the years. This was a really timely conversation around some hot-button issues filled with laughter throughout, brought by Brandon's fantastic personality. Reading Bro Bible was such a large, sentimental part of my college experience. Their fun, light-hearted humor encapsulated the youth culture of my generation and was a source of many laughs with my friends. Hearing Brandon's story of starting Bro Bible, selling the company, and then buying back the company was a uniquely satisfying triumph for a media entrepreneur. And with all of Brandon's adventures in the middle, from working with people like Chrissy Teigen to Hunter S. Thompson's widow, Anita, he has had plenty of incredible experiences. With my deepest appreciation for Brandon's work at Bro Bible, this interview was an absolute delight. And we're very, very excited to be sponsored by the Making Lemonade Fund, Gen Z's fastest growing fundraiser, supporting COVID-19 relief, pediatric cancer, and a bunch of other great causes. Get behind them over at makinglemonadefund.com and sponsor made by our very own Jesse K. Thanks for having me on. I'm stoked to join you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Brent, like before yeah. we uh, get into the first transition, let's just know maybe more about your background. Like growing up, where are you from? What kind of stuff are you into? Was the life you lead now something you've had in your head or did it kind of stumble, stumble into that? Million percent stumbled into yeah. it. Like <laughs> in every way possible. Um, I would say that, so... I'm from uh, central Pennsylvania, um, a town near Gettysburg, Chambersburg. Went to, went to college in Pennsylvania at, uh, at Penn State and was studying to be a English teacher, actually. My, my degree is in English education, secondary English education. Did the whole student teacher thing, taught uh, middle school English for my student teaching. Um, but at the same point in time, when I was in college, I kind of had like a parallel path that I would say that wasn't necessarily like in the classroom where I was really so as like an English major, I've always wanted to kind of be like a writer. I've loved and romanticized the idea of writing, whether it's, you know, in book form, magazine, whatever, um, all these different formats. And when I was in college from, you know, 2004, 2008, the, the idea of like the blogosphere was really starting to take off. Like, and becoming an emerging path of how my generation of like millennial men were getting their news and kind of contextualizing their news in this uh, completely subjective, non-objective reported way um, where voice was really important and worldview kind of, you know, filtered into what that looked like. And, and kind of to give me that sort of professional push in that path, I you know, was really into the work of Hunter S. Thompson, gonzo journalist that wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, whatever, uh, while I was in college. 
I became the research assistant to his widow, Anita Thompson. Wow. I um, mean, a couple wow. years after, a couple years after he passed. Yeah. So I worked to put together a book project while I was in college as a research assistant using like all the resources of a Big Ten library and everything like that. Because at the time, like the information services of the internet weren't at the level that they are now, you know, 15 years later. But at the time I was able to kind of use LexisNexis and compile all this stuff to put together this book of interviews that she was then able to take to a publisher, Galley Press, and then, you know, take out to market. But basically like it was my project for working with her and researching stuff and, you know, archiving things. But in the meantime, you know, officially in school, I was, you know, doing the, doing the kind of the English education thing. Um, and I was like, you know, I really like the publishing world. I like all this kind of stuff going on, you know, magazines that are trying to make a, you know, transition to digital at the time. The aspect of like storytelling and everything like that, that was, you know, kind of what put me on the path of, you know, getting involved after, well, A, I moved out to Colorado to live at Owl Farm and put together, finish up, put the finishing pieces on that book. And then when I moved back East, uh, was freelancing a lot for, you know, just what publications were looking like at the time. This is um, after college. It was, it was after college. It was so easy to get like freelance writing work with companies that now are very big and replicable, reputable, sorry, you know, have a really big footprint because they were just starting off. Nobody really had a budget. And so like really established freelance writers were still getting a dollar word print money, et cetera. Whereas I was like, yeah, dude, 800 words for a hundred bucks. Of course. Like, I'll write <laughs> that. It. that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, and that, and that was kind of the very beginning of, you know, how digital publishers were starting to think about like SEO and like, all these things now that are like the full playbook. But, you know, back then WordPress wasn't that widespread. The, the kind of tech tools that eventually became the publishing, the digital publishing industry, it was a very new thing. And I just got really into what that world looked like. And then myself, I linked up with um, a group of, so I always say founding partner. I'm not the founder of Robottle. The founder is this guy, Doug Banker, who put together five of us in a partnership group, kind of like, you know, like a money ball type of situation and was like, Hey, I have this thing. That's like a message board for lacrosse bros in the Northeast. But like, I think it can be a media company. And all of us were like working other jobs at the time. Broba was kind of a part-time thing for this kind of group of people that then came together. And then eventually we were just like, yo, this is full-time. Let's do this. We're all in. We're, because we were just scaling traffic like crazy as we started to pivot away from the message board social media thing. Because that was that was another thing too. In that pre-Facebook world, everybody was like, I could start a social media network. It could be a new social <laughs> yeah. media network. And like, no, nobody yeah. did. Like it didn't work out, you know? So uh, so Bro Bible was initially envisioned as like the social media network for bros. But we were like, look, the stronger... Uh, business path is to be a viable digital media publisher yeah. that puts things in perspective for this generation, specifically skewing to college age to post-grad life. 
So, so, so can, can, uh, we just started I, I, doing that. <laughs> that's, no, that's amazing. I mean, this was around the time of your first major transition to actually dive in from being an English teacher to getting into freelance writing. So if I'm not mistaken, so your freelance writing was like your main job. And then Bro Bible was something that uh, your buddies came together about saying, hey, let's do this as a potential part-time hobby kind of thing. Can you tell us about like your impression at that time? Did you before, come into it? Anthony, yeah. quickly, quickly, before we go there, because I'm just so insatiably <laughs> curious about this. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, you're working for, for his widow. Yeah, like, that, tell us about that. What, yeah. what was the experience of doing that? And what was she like in the experience of building the book? Absolutely. For a, you know, 21-year-old, 22-year-old person that loved Hunter's work and just absolutely triumphant, triumphanted what his cultural commentary looked like and you know his kind of rebellious nature and everything like that i mean dream come true and you know really it just came because i wrote it all kind of it's funny because it all kind of ties back to the idea of the blog anita started a blog after hunter's passing to just kind of like work her thoughts out a little bit on the community that was around him and kind of put that out there so the people could kind of check in on her via written written form. And I had come across it while I was reading so much Hunter S. Thompson. And I, I wrote a paper uh, for like a English lit class where I talked about fear and living in Las Vegas and the American dream and all these themes and everything like that that came up. And it's just like on a whim, just pure dumb luck, like just sent it to her. And she was with a like, hey, like, you know, I really like your blog. I'm a big reader. I was, I was a huge fan. And I also mentioned how, like, as an English major, Hunter's work came up in classes a lot. And that was, like, the coolest thing to her, was that college kids were talking about Hunter in an academic setting. And eventually, we just kind of traded correspondence back and forth. And she was like, she was like, hey, look, I have this thing. You know, I have a little bit of money. I can pay you to do it if you want to, like, do it. Like, but really I want to take all of this like data and put it into printed word and make sure we have all the rights required to it and like sell it so that this can live in the canon of Hunter S. Thompson forever. So fascinating. Um, wow. And, you know, I transcribed all these like audio tapes from the seventies, a lot of the stuff from the eighties, stuff that writers that writers for like Playboy back in the day that would have like tagged along with Hunter while he was on like a speaking tour. We're just like keeping audio notes of it. it was like transcribing a lot of stuff like that, but then also providing like references to that historic, that historic time frame too, so that it was like contextualized in the overall canon. It's so fascinating. Um, I mean, it, it, it's super interesting, right? Because everyone knows about his death and mm -hmm. I don't think her story will ever really have been told um, and it's not really spoken about too much, but to lose a husband who is such a cult figure and represents so many things for so many different people, yes. yet she had this kind of like personal interaction, which was probably yes. not quite those things. Absolutely. So Absolutely. And, you know, well, I don't want to speak for her first of yeah, all. Sure. She still is a very, she still is a very, very dear friend and mentor in a lot of ways. A lot of our work together was on the idea of legacy for somebody of letters like that, that has such a vast amount of writing or whatever out there in the universe and is beloved like that. It's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a sculpted thing, 
but it's a very like curated thing of how that gets put out there to the public and packaged up and everything like that. You know, Anita's done a tremendous job of, I don't want to say navigating that, but, and it also isn't just Anita. It's everybody that kind of was in that orbit, in Hunter's orbit, that really believed in his virtues and values and championed them to, to kind of storytell it in their own way. And that's what I think is so great about some of the, the way that Hunter's legacy, media legacy has looked over the last 15 years with the rum diary and like gonzo i actually went to the do- the premiere of the gonzo documentary which is i think it's on netflix i don't know it's alex gibney's documentary which was one of the craziest that was like a moment where i was like i want to work in publishing for me because yeah. i was like 22 i was like 22 i was wide-eyed but i'm in the room with these these absolute titans of the new york publishing industry Mark Cuban's production company, I think, financed that documentary. It was like Jimmy Buffett was there. All these like people that were just like culturally adjacent to Hunter over the years. Various like editors from Rolling Stone back in the day and all that stuff. Any uh, Liberates. It's just, it was, it was cool. And I was like, I love the publishing world. And this is like where I see a place for myself. But Hence the transition though, too. Let me kind of like tie it back to the transition. (laughs) When I was freelance writing, I mean, I was just taking jobs from anybody that would pay me to put words together on paper, like, to be honest, like, and a lot of it was very like niche focused. My first gigs were for AOL and a travel site called Sherman's Travel, which actually travel newsletter called, (laughs) called Sherman's Travel, which is like a boomer 50 plus leading like media property, but incredibly successful, like incredibly successful property. But it was just like literally just writing a lot of copy, figuring out what my voice was in that and figuring out how to commoditize my voice to a lot of places. But then eventually being like, okay, my path is either going to go at the time, I'm either going to go the corporate media route somehow and like figure out how I'm fitting in like a, an organization that's established. I think I sent in that time frame. I remember I applied to a job at Complex because I was like, oh, this seems like a cool like new you know yeah. company, whatever, like something like that. But then the other path in that transition was, or I could figure out how to be a part of something where I make it my I make it my own you know (laughs) yeah and uh that was bro bible was that and that was like what won ultimately at the end of the day just because you could i think the thing was like was clear was like all right when you're in on the ground floor of an organization and helping to like come to a consensus with other people about where something is going um there's a lot that goes into that there's data there's what works and what doesn't work there's there's capital like there are all these things that kind of come together and uh bro bible was the one where i was like okay cool we have this like little tiny audience of people in the northeast that know us how do we make this a national thing and how do we seize the imagination of like a generation really it is how do we seize the imagination of a generation and and how did how did you all come together so you're saying there was this one um main founder and were you buddies from college and you were all like no everybody thinks that we all just so it came together it's so funny we were not buddies from college 
basically I came across Bro Bible as like an internet user and I saw a post that they were looking for like writers and contributors and I was like, hey, I'm right here. Here's my work. Let's do something. That was it. And then we had meetings and then we all realized that like all of our energy, like we all, it all just worked. Like we worked together, you know, we clicked and we knew that we kind of had the same vision of what we wanted from something and, you know, went forth from there. Yeah. And, and what was Grow Bible in its very first iteration? Oh, and so, I should also oh, say yeah. being in New York City was also a really key part of that dynamic yeah. too. Uh, but I don't think it would have really been possible if I wasn't in New York. Just because of the the people, everybody was there, the culture and media at the time, the, the audience relevance. Too. Yeah, all of that. Audience relevant, the culture and media, the idea too of just being able to sit in a room with people and bounce ideas yeah. off mm-hmm. of each other or yeah. like go to a bar and talk through like yeah. ideas and stuff like that. I don't think that we would have been able to, you know, we wouldn't have been able to start Bro Bible if like it was just a remote work. Yeah. Like, Ping each other on instant message, instant yeah. messenger all day thing. Where it really started to take a life of its own was when we could be around each other. Got it. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and so it's, it really started as, uh, was it a lacrosse jobs board or something for in, in the Eastern USA? Jobs. Yeah, lacrosse, like Northeastern lacrosse college, like lifestyle, like Laxboro thing. Um, it was in the wake of like um, this viral video, uh, Ultimate Laxbro, which like took off and was I know a that huge, one. yeah, you know what I'm talking, Brenton. <laughs> yeah, I have flashbacks. And it was like then. a cult. <laughs> it was a cult sensation, like with just like dudes in the Northeast, because I think for the first time, like a content creator was like capturing the culture and the inside jokes of like a certain type of person that yeah. wasn't really being projected in the media and wasn't really like coming to light yet in the internet. So that was the wave where it was just a little bit of like a, just a little bit of a ripple. Uh, but then it started to just grow and grow and grow. Like the early days of bro Bible were really just us embracing things that we felt like were, viral amongst everybody in our age group does that make sense like yeah bros like the icing phenomenon bros icing bros that was like a watershed moment for us yes as a like organization as silly as it is a meme where you're just handing somebody a smear off ice and they have to like chug it but bro bible got credited in the new york times for that for like basically causing that to snowball and like that was when we were like all right, like this is this is the DNA. We embrace these viral moments that are culturally significant amongst a certain demographic, and but we find the through lines of that in other pillars of culture, not just like meme moments. Yeah, and that's what Bro Bible becomes eventually as a brand. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really fascinating way of thinking about it. I'm curious, and we may may get to this later as well, but. If you're going to do something similar today and embrace something that's, you know, maybe a meme that's underserved in writing, um, what would you go for? I, I don't know if I could answer that, to be honest. Mm. Like, I, I would say everything is so niche these days. Yeah. Um, and I always say that, that, you know, I genuinely mean it. Like, we could not start Bro Bible right now 
just because, you know, the internet, like, as the platforms have grown and it kind of put everybody with their very sophisticated data in their own kind of lanes about affinities and interests, um, it's really hard to be just like a rowdy men's lifestyle, like blog that is trying to be trying to stick it to like the glossy magazines of the world. Like, you know, the maximum GQs and like those, the old people things as we like to call it back in the day, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, it sounds like in many ways, these kind of um, those new digital media brands of the, that era have kind of paved the way for the big media brands of today. Would you say that's true? And in what kind of senses would you think that's, that's the case? I, I a thousand percent believe that like in a huge way, because I think, first of all, there wasn't a lot of organizational structure to what being a media brand looked like in, you know, that timeframe. I would say the people that were really like, there were a handful of us that I think were really like embracing it and doing it really well. Like, like Gawker Media, I think is a great example of a brand of, you know, a blog brand that had a really great cadence, a really great rapport of how it talked, you know, spoke with its audience and everything like that. It broke news everything like everything everything about it was just like very beloved by a by a group of people that maybe didn't expand that and it didn't expand that well past you know just the confines of the internet and its own properties i think we were trying to model a little bit of ourselves after that and that but then at the same point in time i also think that like what dave did with bleacher report uh was so important for sports media because it was the idea of, hey, you can write about sports, but you don't have to just be like your teams. Like our pro- there's some uh, flexibility across like the property of like how things can work. You don't have to think of yourself as the beat reporter for like your favorite hockey team or something like that. You know what I mean? Bleacher Report does it all like when it comes to sports. And like I have always, I've we just you know long admire Bleacher Report as a business because of its because of that like those capabilities to capture young hungry content creators back in the day uh and give them like a big platform because that was a lot of what we did too uh we were like hey look you're young and hungry you want to create cool content you want to make people laugh like but you don't necessarily want to be tied to an organization like you know, college humor where you have to, where it's your job to do it every single day. And, you know, sometimes that misses or whatever, like come make some stuff for us, use it, go on to the next thing, like do it. And, you know, we'll create like kind of a, an alumni network, if you will, of like what, you know, bro Bible looked like uh, to put you on the path you were on. Yeah. I, I'd love to dive deeper into how icing that as a meme might have parallels <laughs> <Yeah>. with um, <laughs> uh, memes today because, well, for one thing, it's kind of like, I, when I was in college, people were icing each other all the time. It was like- just, Anthony, but, where, where'd you go to school? So I went to high school in Connecticut and then college in Ohio. Um, That's so, why you do Bro Bible because you grew exactly. up in Connecticut. It's, it's fascinating to me that icing, if I understand the way you described like how Bro Bible caught on to that, it wasn't like, someone at bro bible invented it you saw someone in a school or whatever yes. do it bro bible bro bible amplified the icing that suddenly the whole country signal boosted it right yeah yep exactly we signal boosted it and like that was um mm. that has always been so important to what bro bible is is 
you know, or sorry, in that incarnation of what Bro Bible was, it was a lot of like the cycle of, you know, hey, people at my school or, or people at my college are like doing this, like, here's picture, you know what I mean? Here, yeah, like, yeah. look at it. Like, you know, can you guys like write about it and like, you know, put it in context so that people elsewhere like know of what it is because like icing as a phenomenon in that era of like, of social, of the social networks, yeah. like it wouldn't have gone viral. It wouldn't have yeah. like taken off or anything like that. You would have just posted it to Facebook and maybe your friends would have saw it or something like that. Maybe it would have been like, you know, um, there, maybe there'd be a couple funny moments in those silos of people, yeah. but it wouldn't have had the ability to transcend to a national story, you know? Yeah. Well, and so we really embrace that. And people would just, with the icing thing, as soon as we started like talking about it and posting it and being like, oh, it's really funny to do this. I think we did like a top 10 list where we were like, you know, just something silly, like top 10, like, best ways to like surprise your surprise somebody with an ice and it's yeah. like bacon in a birthday cake or yeah. like you know what i mean like <laughs> I know exactly. things like that <laughs> like i think we did something like that and that really took took off and then people started like sending us pictures of them like at graduation getting iced and everything like and, and you know that was just like a big part of it was like the feedback loop of listening to our audience like saying, Hey, this is cool. Like, let's put this out there. And then keeping keeping that going yeah. for a little bit until it was time to move yeah. to the next thing. Cause I, I see parallels between that and also let's say TikTok challenges, right? TikTok doesn't create the challenge, yes. but someone does. And then it gets popular on TikTok, then amplified that suddenly I'm doing the challenge or like an Instagram yes. meme. Like, and it's interesting. Cause I think there's a couple of business models that have been based around this. Obviously TikTok is like a tech platform but you also have like, you know, these like um, Instagram meme media companies like Jerry Media, like yes. Fuck Jerry. Yep. And yep. They, don't, yep. they don't create their own content. They essentially like kind of take memes and then amplify them in a way. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's all, of it. it's, it's taking memes, amplifying it, but remixing it too, to add your own like original yep. voice to it. And I think that's where like, you know, I, I feel like we don't really talk about this anymore because I feel like it's just like accepted, but from like 2009 to 2014-ish, like remix culture was like a big, big thing. Like, especially when it came to like music, um, you know, EDM kind of was popping off and it wasn't necessarily like original. It wasn't necessarily that it was like original music all the time, like Girl Talk and like White Panda yes. and all these groups, like they, you know, would attract headline sets at music festivals to you know tens of thousands of people just remixing things you know what i mean remixing other people's ip so that super it was its own you know thing super mash bros exactly i think we did a, a couple of shows with the super with super mash bros nice. yeah. um because we we love their game <laughs> it's a cool name <laughs> we did yeah well and that was the other thing too of that time period and i think that that like is how meme culture kind of came to be in a lot of ways was like, hey, there are all these elements of culture that can be put together with the tools that are now at our, you know, disposal, disposal, whether it's iMovie down to, you know, an iPhone um, and putting it out there in the world. And the person that can produce it the best is probably going to be the person that can like 
you know, take credit for it being like the thing, you know, that can take on, take take on a life of its own. So, so could you could you tell us, Brandon, from the moment you started with Grow Bible to the the big moment when you guys sold it in 2012? Like, what what was the story behind leading up to that moment? What what happened there? Tell us a bit, a bit more about that. Yeah. So, so this was such an exciting time period because a you know traffic on the site was like every month new record of like traffic growth there's just a lot of things coming into coming into the fold there at the time because uh because technology was starting to take off people were transitioning from blackberries to iphones so like mm. the idea big of being moment. Able to, big moment big big moment exactly a uh, big moment for somebody to be able to like just check a website all day yeah. um all day long and kind of check in for you know news updates or whatever um, Facebook pages just had started to take off. Um, so that was obviously a big like growth moment for, you know, digital publishers. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we're scaling the site, we're doubling down on original content. We're doubling down on how we talk about things like bros, I see bros, EDM sports, um, in a unique way to, to this audience. Um, and then, um, in the meantime, we had to find a revenue. We had to find revenue streams. Yeah. Um, digital advertising wasn't there yet, to be honest. Like, so, like you know, AdSense was around for Google, um, and everything on the like, on the established publishing side was very direct sold, um, and very like you know, salesperson goes to a media agency, buys whatever. So, in order to scale the business we started getting into concert promotions where we, um, where we just riding this kind of cultural wave at the time, uh, we were like, Hey, look, this like DJ is really popular um, in this demographic. Like if we bring them into New York city, how can we, you know, have a deal uh, where that's like a revenue positive event for us. Um, so we, we just started doing concert tours and, uh, a lot of like stuff like that concert tours uh bringing in like emerging generational talent into like big um basically a thousand to three thousand room person venues in new york and then figuring out like rev splits on what that looked like mm. um with like the venue owners and everything like that like a couple a little bit of that was like hey and our value prop was we're bringing an online audience offline like and and brands love that for sponsorships. Uh, a lot of like sponsorship sold in a concert venue there to like Diageo and like Jägermeister and like places like that. So that was, a, that was a huge, huge, you know, revenue boost for us. But in the meantime, our traffic is skyrocketing like crazy. And it's way easier to run a digital, like, you know, a digital publishing company than it is to run a concert promotion company. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we, and also just because the game was starting to really, really escalate in terms of like artists like, you know, Avicii getting like big, you know, multi-million dollar deals to perform at like Ultra or like Vegas and stuff like that. And, you know, it, it was it, in those two years, it wasn't as easy to be so scrappy uh, by the end of it. So, you know, we were like, Hey, Look, we have a huge audience. Um, you know, let's figure out how to do it. So uh, we sold. And how, big, how big was your audience at this time? 
Um, I mean, 2 million unique visitors at the time, which like we were pretty proud of. Uh, I would also say the coolest thing about that 2 million unique visitors was that wasn't like an SEO audience or even a social publishing audience. That was like, uh, I'm putting brobible.com in my browser and coming to your website. Right. Yeah. Highly engaged. I'm like sticking around in the comments section. I'm like, you know, sending your links to my friends, like on BBM or like something like that. And, uh, that like that user group was obviously brands love that. Uh, Oh, I should say certain brands love that. Like, you know, our early ad partners were a lot of like alcohol brands, HBO, like movie studios, video game studios, et cetera, stuff like that. They love that. So we uh, sold the business to a company called Woven Digital, which was basically the direct sales arm for, for like all of these emerging companies that I don't want to say we're doing the same thing, but like had the same audience and the same appeal to like advertisers at the time. Um, and so like Woven had uh, the Chive, the Chive, TFM, Elite Daily, Barstool, uh, and all these other sites that at that moment of time were really you know popular. And they would then, Woven sales team would then go to like media buyers and be like, hey, you got to buy this audience. Like, you know, this is where your audience is hanging out. And like, that was, that was it. <laughs> so, so it sounds like was Woven Digital like a holding company for the sort of like youth culture kind of publications, like, like, like uh, all those ones you mentioned? Yeah, I would say, so that was the, that was the goal. Like, and then eventually uh, after a couple of years of us being an O&O in there, uh, while they also had rep deals and everything like that uh, with, you know, other organizations, they they then acquired Uproxx and the full uh, Uproxx.com and then the full kind of vision for what that company became was basically just like Uproxx as like a culture destination. And, uh, you know, Bro Bible kind of played second fiddle in all of that as we kind of grew and we wanted, but in the meantime, there were other things that we were able to do like on the video front on, you know, some cool stuff with like content creators. I always like to say that like the two ones that like really kind of stick out uh, to me are like one, this was what, this was like 2011 ish. We did like, we brought Chrissy Teigen on to do like a relationship advice column. Nice. I, I don't even know if she was like dating John legend at the time, but like we had like a great rapport with her. It was really funny because like, it was just like an email thing that my colleague Alex was like, you know, just trading emails back and forth. Like, Hey, do you want to like write an advice call for us? She jumped at it. It was great. And then a couple years later, I like ran, ran into her at an event. She was like, Oh my gosh, that was like such a watershed moment for me. That was so <laughs> fun. And that's like so cool in retrospect, you know? Yeah. Um, and then like a couple years, and then we did like a post, we did a thing where like Theo Vaughn like blogged of, for us around when he was released, releasing like a comedy special with Netflix, just like little things like that, that were just like really fun with cool talent, you know? So, so this was, and this was all happening after Revival was sold in 2012. Did, did, did the structure of the company change in the sense that, I mean, at that point you'd gone from this founding team of five or so people how big was the company at that point? Did did people end up like leaving as a? Yeah, it did. It dramatically changed, and it 
it's funny because it didn't really change in the sense of like our content or if you're on the consumer side of things you would see that but like you know i went from basically having to be basically from having kind of my finger on the pulse of like the editorial vision of the site and everything like that to like doing a lot of stuff on the pre-sale side of things and the brand strategy side and like you know ways of like steering the ship like that kind of behind the scenes uh because there's a lot of work that goes into that on the like the marketing marketing side of of executing things and then you know content creators kind of came in and out what a partner uh from one of my founding partners from back in the day eventually went to lab bible which was really funny (laughs) (laughs) which was funny because like that was like a funny thing for us because like lab bible had started after bro bible and like people were because they were so good at scaling a facebook audience and all of the ways that you could scale a facebook audience back then that we were like not that cool with um it was funny because people were be like, oh, like, Bro Bible's the American Lab Bible. And, like, we were like, no, we were first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. But nothing, nothing but the best. He had, a, he had you know, and he, he, he then eventually uh, moved over to the UK and, like, and all of that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you look when you sell your when you sell your company, like other people are in charge of your destiny. That's all there is to it. You know, well, I mean, we've we've interviewed a few people who've gone through an acquisition and sometimes it's a wonderful experience. Sometimes they're ups and downs. But, yeah, it's clearly a pivotal moment in Bro Bible's history. Then what's really interesting is when you told us about your story here before we got on this call, you actually ended up reacquiring Bro Bible in 2018. Is that correct? Like, how, how does that yeah. happen? Well, basically, you know, Uprox uh, sold to Warner Music Group, and we had the chance. You know, we were like, "Well, what do you, you know, what are you going to do with Bro Bible?" Because we had always, you know, it, like I don't want to necessarily say that, like we had, we knew that people like yourself and Anthony knew of us. Um, we knew we had a really strong audience in terms of like what our visitorship looked like to the site. And we knew that there's an opportunity for the brand to kind of have this third chapter, essentially, because that's really what it is. I look at it in that there are, you know, three very distinct chapters of Bro Bible, like the founding years, uh, the six years of ownership and oper- operatorship under another company. And then in tw- summer 2018, when we reacquired the business, uh, we had the opportunity to run it, owned and operated, uh, and basically start a new business with a brand that had existed for, you know, uh, eight, nine years prior, like at that point in time. So, you know, we, when that opportunity kind of came to light for us to kind of do that, we were like, let's do it. Like, you know, why, you know, it was one of those things where, it was like, okay, what are we, I don't, you know, you kind of do some soul searching. Like, yeah. you're like, all right, like, what do we, what do we do? Do we all just like go our separate ways? And like, if you think about it, like, and that's the other thing too, all of our colleagues, like it's a very tight network still of like content creators and like everything like that. It kind of becomes like, all right, do we all just like become a band and do our own solo careers here <laughs> and go like the own way, our own way? Or do we like, you know, put forward a big way to, you know, keep this thing, turn this thing into, into another chapter, 
which is what we, you know, now three years in have done is uh, like I said, old business, but revitalized it, uh, started banging on a lot of like brand doors on the advertising you know, side of things, uh, figured out new distribution channels that were kind of emerging, you know, in the last couple of years within, within Uprox uh, to, to give new light to the audience. And then also bring in new content creators and just like have people experience the brand in a different way. I don't want to necessarily say that we're like a nostalgia brand. We're not, we're a men's lifestyle brand, but oftentimes when we work with people on the, on the advertising brand level, which is, you know, what almost all of our businesses, everybody understands that they're like, yeah, you guys are like the ones that like stood out from the Esquires and GQs of the world. Like Mm. everybody knows exactly what they're buying when they're, when they advertise with you guys. And like, we're happy as a clam doing that. <laughs> so yeah, like it's, it's created like a really cool chapter for us the last, you know, the last couple of years. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm sure the state of distribution channels obviously has changed a lot. Um, media itself has changed. Massively. But, Massively. Yeah. I think the, the other thing that's really interesting to me about this is that, you know, as a, as a subculture kind of the bro niche, you'd call it probably now, even though before, you know, maybe a community, has actually changed a lot in its kind of the way that the world is viewing it, um, the way that it is kind of viewing itself. What does yep. kind of broness represent today, and how do you think that's changed since you first started? I I think it's I I think that is an incredible question because like that was a thing that we felt like we were really like fighting against back in the day was this idea of like the bro was like like a, the situation from the Jersey shore mm. or something like that. This like meathead style mentality of, you know, how you view the world, whatever. And we were always like, you know, we were always like, look, it's very like broness is like being kind and endearing and like looking out for your fellow human being, you know, and like, and like Rudy championing your, your, you know, your brother in arms and everything like that. Like, there are all these talking points of like, you know, like being a bro, is it just like being a meathead that likes to work out or whatever? Like that's, you know, that's like a very, very, that's a very like straight and narrow archetype. And I think that we like really tried to embrace that early on. I think that a lot of the people that gravitated to bro Bible in those days really understood that from a cultural standpoint and were really willing to, kind of champion that we were like trying to change that attitude out there for it. Um, And I think that that has really, I think that's really endured over the years that like, you know, Hey, like, look, it's, these are just like the stories that we tell in bro level are just like, you know, building people up, you know, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, like, and capturing news through a lens where it's just is speaking its voice. It's just speaking to people in a way that's relevant to how they talk to each other, like in social situations with their friends and stuff like that. It's not trying to be the tastemaker or yeah. like art- overly articulate like what you should be doing. Because that was why I gravitated so much to the brand back in the day was that because I, I hated that like GQ and Esquire and Maxim had this very smug way of like, telling you the media you need this to is a man right yeah it's like 
dude, fuck off. Like, you know? <laughs> like, identity is made up of so many things. Don't just yeah. fucking, like, you know, yeah. patronize me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, I mean, it's interesting because obviously, you know, you guys just with the readership you have and had back in the day as well, um, you know, you've got a lot of influence over the way that young men are thinking in America specifically, but also probably broader yeah. today as well. Um, and I guess you could assert that, you know, you guys would therefore have some responsibility to share content that positively shapes American young men. Um, do you feel that kind of sense of stewardship to put out content I like that? I do. Um, and I think that we've, I think that we've done a really good job of that, like over the years. And I think that like, for example, back in the day, and this is like 2011, 2011 or 2012 ish, um, somewhere around there, we were like really fascinated by, we were really fascinated by like the, the mod of a Reddit sub called Gabros was like he was like yo i want to write for you guys like you guys can really like help us like you know destigmatize like you know this idea of gay bros and what the like what the community was and uh the guy's name is anthony i was like anthony like you like let's do it like write it like this is going to be great and we need to like these are the kind of like gender conversations that we need to be having about you know and 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 it's not necessarily like de even de it's funny because like, I don't even see it as destigmatizing anything. It's just that like, there wasn't like a great conversation being had in media organizations for consumers to read and interact with. You know what I mean? So like signal boosting those little things, I feel like were are a big part of our identity along the way. That was a great example of it. I remember there was like a brief like craze around like the dad bod for example where like <laughs> this is where like when the when the idea of the dad bod started started to really take off as like a gender or as like a you know as a cultural conversation with you know millennial uh, men and women and like we had a piece go so mega viral on that because like you're talking about body types like people are gonna chime in and have their like you know thing to say about yeah. it whatever but like you know to me it's like look bro bible's got to embrace those little moments here and there um the thing where like where i think things got have been like strange though and this is just like an environment thing is like we've always we've always tried to decidedly you know steer away from politics but yeah. when there's a political cycle it's like impossible to be an internet publisher and not kind of have like get caught in the crossfire yeah. of like where what politics you know are and everything like that and you know that's i and that's something that like to me is a very all right like we stay straight ahead we cover you know social movements in the nba and in sports and everything like that and, you know, people will chime in and like us or not on how that is, but ultimately that's just a reflection of where the culture is at any given moment, you know? And, and like, it's funny because you can see the people that lean into wanting to appease that from like a, you know, dopamine dump or something like that. Um, and our attitude is always like for the business to be its best self and bro Bible to be its best self, just like 
keep on going. Like, just, you know, don't, you know, don't try to like play op-ed column or anything like that, but like, you know, present things in a positive light, um, in a fun voice and go from there. Yeah. That, I mean, it's fascinating. It was, um, one of my favorite journalists, a guy called, uh, Janan Ganesh. I don't know if you've ever read him, but yeah, he wrote, yeah, 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 I love him. And the FT just runs him so hard, which makes him even better. Um, but he's, uh, he wrote a piece a while back on the fact that sports is, he thinks that the role of sports in people's lives is it's an escape from politics. Um, so it sounds like you guys have really kind of adopted that as a philosophy as well, I guess. Yeah, and, but here's the thing though. It's like, I think escape from politics is the way that we kind of look at it, but you can't ignore like things that bubble up that have sociocultural implications on them in the sports, you know, news cycle too. Yeah. So like our, our goal is to present those as like a springboard still um, to, to other things, you know, cause I think it's, it's important. Like, I think like sometimes if you ignore something too much that it's like, you're, you look like tone deaf, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I guess, I guess actually a question on that, cause you know, there's been there's been a little bit of a culture war going on, I guess you could say, or a backlash against Brunus or lad culture in the UK, if you're yeah. going yeah, for the lad yeah. Bible side of things. Do you think that, you know, there is a problem or do you think that the media has kind of generalized a minority of smaller, more negative cases? I think I think it's, you know, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to answer that, because like. I do think that there's a little bit of the latter of what you said. I think that there are, you know, the, the exception is being kind of springboarded out into the culture at large. I think though, that like in, in the United States, like, for example, like, I don't think that the idea of the bro is necessarily something that gets lumped in with like insurrectionists or like something like that. I think it's, I think people are smart enough to see that that's not really the case that yeah. somebody like that just likes to like, you know, watch a UFC fight with their friends on Saturday night. Isn't the same person as somebody who like is, you know, hanging around uh QAnon message boards and like, you know, looking to like, go down that kind of rabbit hole um, and bro Bible leads towards Gatorade towards the person that wants to just, you know, watch a UFC fight on Saturday night with their friends. <laughs> but yeah. like and inevitably these conversations do come up though, because like, I think that that's like a thing that, you know, people have a hard time separating those arc archetypes in their head because, you know, they true. see, they see a person and they say, Hey, that person like might not be very like there could be a like like the thing that what was it the thing that was driving me crazy for a while what was it the Bugalo boys or something like that the guys that were wearing Hawaiian shirts that were like white supremacists or something like something that drove me crazy because it's like like I love Hawaiian shirts I don't <laughs> want to be considered a white supremacist like <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean like, I love them I love them and if you know, if these assholes are ruining, you know, things that can be cherished widespread, um, that just sucks for the rest of us, you know? But I also think that it's, in a lot of ways, a part of our stewardship, stewardship um, is to be able to say, like, hey, don't, like, 
don't judge, <laughs> you yeah. know, don't judge like, because uh, you know, I'm, I'm just like a fat dude that likes wearing Hawaiian shirts. Don't let me in with these people, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. another dynamic of the conversation that like we have to have with our audience and also part of what our mission is, you know, yeah. in, as part of that. So I, I'd love to get your take on the creator economy and these trends of what media is evolving into. And I guess the specific angle I'm really curious about is that if someone were to start a media brand today, what we're seeing is that media brands can be just based around people much more than the need for having like a broader organization. And mm. someone could be like a micro media brand by starting a Substack, their own blog, their own YouTube channel, which are things that didn't necessarily exist to the same extent when Bro Bible was founded. What, what's your thoughts on this sort of new type of media that is roughly categorized as the creator economy? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I love it. Like power to the people, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's so cool. Like, it's so cool to see people be able to take their kind of destinies into their own hand. And like, I think that, I think that it is really exciting for people to have the tools for audiences to have the tools at their disposal to be able to build a content creator up to an incredible level. That said, I do think one thing that's going to happen, I do think one of the things that is going to be interesting to see over time is the longevity of what that really looks like and the ability to reach new audiences, like outside of things being solo, like siloed in kind of somebody's own bubble. And that's where, like, I've heard uh, Dave, for example, I've heard uh, him say a lot that, you know, uh, media, media cycles are just, it's the nature of the beast that, you know, things just cycle. Like, yeah. it happens, something's hot, and then the model moves towards, like, what something looked like, you know, a while ago. The, the classic analogy is, like, magazines in the 70s are what became cable like MTV in the like eighties, which then became like the internet empires of like, you know, the aughts and everything like that. I do think that one of the things the creator on economy is going to have to figure out is like, that's why people link up and create businesses by do by making things together is because there's less pressure and more longevity in being able to group together and have an equal ballast to what it is you're doing without burning yourself out. Like, I think the burnout is going to be a real, real big thing in the creator economy, especially with like some of these newsletter creators. Writing's hard. Like, you know, when I see people say like, oh, I want to start a newsletter, it makes me think of like all of the, all of the like live journals from back in the day or like Zanga pages or like, uh, you know, Tumblr blogs that were great in the moment of time. But then eventually people are like, it's not that they lose interest. It's just that they like realize that it's really, really hard to write every day and make a good living doing that, you know? Yeah. Like, and, and that is something that eventually is going to happen with subscription too in that uh, with paying subscription, you know, and it doesn't matter how much money you make, eventually you're going to get burned out on 
you know, taking all of those reps over and over again. But, you know, it's in its infancy and it's cool to see it happen. I do think, though, that eventually there's going to be like, you're going to start seeing these creators group up, form media companies, and, uh, you know, become the next bro bottles of the world and everything like that, the next college humors of the world, the next whatever complexes. And I think that's really exciting, to be honest. Totally. And and I think, um, I, I mean, I know we've spoken about it uh, before as well, but when it came to like building audiences, I think a lot of people focus on kind of organic growth of audiences and, you know, building into a community that you already know that there's, you know, certain, as you said, you know, there are these moments that you latched onto and you built through them and you gave a voice to what you were doing. It seems to me like there's uh, kind of an emerging conversation around acquiring audiences. Um, yes. what, what do you make of this kind of audience acquisition through maybe buying a, I don't know, Reddit power user or an Instagram uh, influencer account or anything else? I, I, I don't, I mean, I understand why people do it. Like, I think it's important to, if you just think about it like a, like a nozzle on a hose, it's important to like direct people that have an affinity to what you're doing you know, directly to whatever it is that, you know, people with that alignment, you know, finding that audience that way. I don't think it's, I don't think it's great though. Like I think organic is really good, but I, I, it's so hard to be, or it's so hard to build an organic audience these days, you know, and it, it really, it, and that is something that I think the platforms know and are going to figure out like I have a little bit more faith in the platforms than I think a lot of other people do. I think that like the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world um, are going to, they're going to want to make discovery easier over time as the AI gets more sophisticated as, you know, uh, alignments with like, you know, affinity groups gets, you know, more sophisticated like they're going to want to make the idea of content discovery easier so that people aren't just siloed in their own, you know, ways of and viewpoints of looking at the world because they just went through hell and back the last like five years with, you know, what happened in that. And I think that they're going to, I think that like the platforms are going to open themselves up to ways of discovering new viewpoints and uh, new content creation and everything else like that, because their massive businesses on the giant scale that they're at are at risk of that. You know, as you're now seeing with litigation in Europe and Australia and everything yeah. like that. Um, I mean, all of that is reactionary to basically them putting people in silos for the last, you know, eight years. <laughs> and like doing that has caused such political turmoil that like, you know, governments are now fighting against that with, you know, looking to regulate and litigate. And uh, they're going to, you know, eventually they're going to just have to open up the idea of discovery there for um, even if it's not in the best interest of their advertisers, it's in the best interest of their, the longevity of these gigantic multi-trillion dollar corporations. So, you know, yeah. it's an interesting time for that. How do, you, how do you guys, uh, how are you kind of thinking about growing your audience from, from now onwards over the next kind of five years? 
Yeah, we do. So we do. It fluctuates. We do. I think we did seven million unique visitors in January. Um, we were very diversified in our uh, traffic stream. Um, it's you know, Facebook is still a big uh, a big driver for us, but it also also uh, search is huge. So which I always like to say, search. A lot of people like. A lot of people don't talk about how important SEO is these days, but the people that know SEO are important, like can't say it loud enough, like how important it is um, because people are always curious and Google is that tick to, you know, discover information for, you know, most of the world. So search obviously is, is, is massive for us and direct is still a very big part of the brand. Um, you know, and a little bit of that is in how we bring content creators in to like, you know, work, you know, work for us, uh, and kind of grow in these organic ways that are still part of the playbook from like 12 years ago, you know, and that to me is like really exciting. Like, for example, we brought in, um, Francis Ellis was, um, a content creator at Barstool for a while and kind of, I don't know, I guess ceremoniously in their world uh or unceremoniously i don't know it he was like let go there um and we were like well the dude's a really good writer like he's a really good content creator like make a house a home here um and you know put him on the team and uh we did and you know he brought his audience with him like and that was that's like yeah that's like that's cool that's like what we wanted you know <laughs> And yeah. he writes great content. It doesn't, and it's, it's, he has really like clever takes and they're clever takes to his audience. I will say like, that's the thing though, that like a lot of what that has to look like is, all right, he has to speak to his people. Sometimes that doesn't cross over as well to people that don't understand, you know, his kind of like humor. But when you do that as an organization with a lot of people, then that becomes what you do, you know? Uh, SNL would be very boring if it was just the same group of people, you know, the exact same person um, on it. The, you know, the, the diverse voices are what make a cast a cast. While people are here thinking about Bro Bible, what are some of the most, I guess, shows or upcoming, upcoming shows, current shows, features, articles, content that people should check out right now if they were to go to Bro Bible? Oh, dude. I've, Awesome. Thank you for asking that. That is a great question. No, we have, we have, a, well, we have a lot, we have a lot of things in the works. I mean, we look, we've, you know, we've seen kind of the podcast wave and, you know, I think it's, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. I'm a big believer in the ideas of podcasts being the thing that creates newsworthy moments. Yeah. Um, I like that. Awesome huge huge believer in it and uh so we have two podcasts that basically are just i don't want to say the existence of them is to create newsworthy moments but like that's what they do one is called post crab podcast it's a entertainment entertainment podcast where you know we talk about marvel movies and wandavision and star wars and like all that like fun stuff in the in the entertainment world um hosted by eric Itau. Um, on our team and then the other one is a podcast called endless hustle endless hustle is our like sports celebrity interview show we have had just such a cool array of guests 
on there over the years. We've had, uh, or over the last like six months, we've had, you know, Christopher McDonald, uh, Aaron Andrews, Kurt Busch, Jalen Rose, like all these like athletes and everything like that. Um, it's funny because we initially started that podcast as the idea of like, oh, we're going to talk to athletes about their post, like what they do after their career in the world of like business. Like what's their right. hustle like after they leave professional yeah. sports. Very quickly it became like, you know, like, well, like that's a little bit of what we talk about, but very quickly it's like, well, let's just talk about whatever it is you're doing. You know, it doesn't have to necessarily <laughs> yeah. be like a career yeah. king or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But like the cool thing about that is we get these just stories out of people that, you know, people bring to, they come prepared, like, you know, they come prepared to a podcast to tell a story. And then we, that lives in its long range form as a podcast on video and audio. But then we create a news article around it. And then when that news article gets up, uh, you know, gets posted on Bro Bible, then the opportunity for it to be aggregated by, you know, the New York Post, like Barstool, like everybody in public. It's like a giant Christmas turkey of content. Exactly. It's a giant (laughs) Christmas turkey of content. And the original, and we own the original source of what the root of that information looks like. So like, it's so funny because like, you know, people are always like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, a podcast has to, has to be like Joe Rogan or like part of my take or something like that. It has to be a show where I'm like, no, like a podcast has to be people talking through their ideas and their stories and giving something. And then that can go a gazillion ways, like in how it can be distributed in media forms. And that is the beauty of it. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's actually really interesting because we've had guests who have come on and they basically say, can I get the raw file of this so that I can cut my video into, you know, 20 different segments and put them on my social media? Like, yeah, it's, it's so funny. We're still struggling to figure out what we call that, like as, a, yeah. as an industry, like, because it's like, it really is, it's journalism at the end of the day. Yes, but like, I think so. But, but at the same point in time, it's like, you know, when you're in the, like, how do you go to like Toyota and say, Hey, can you like sponsor this podcast that also gets distributed in like, you know, 20 different ways and yeah. has a lot of cultural momentum on it. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to value that from like a business sense. Right. Like, like, cause I mean, I think, I think I've, I think I've told you, you know, I worked in essentially ad sales for a few years working at Facebook. So like, I, yeah. I'm familiar with those kind of conversations with like big car companies and how you pitch a media brand today. It's it, There's a lot of magic involved in how well you're able to have that conversation, but that will evolve and become more sophisticated over time, I'm sure. Yeah, I, do, in a thousand percent will. And I think people are under, I think people in the media buying and planning world are understanding that, that a podcast isn't just, hey, did 2 million people listen to the show? so that we could have a pre-roll impression like, you know, served in it. I think people understand now that it's like, or are starting to understand more that it's the genesis for how a lot of other content is getting created around the internet um, and lives in these little moments, you know, whether it gets picked up on Reddit or like, you know, has goes viral for somebody on like Twitter or something like that. 
I think that's why it's such a cool medium. And I think we're also going to start to see now with like Clubhouse and like, yeah. the, you know, whatever the Twitter thing is, we're going to start to see a lot of like what reporting out of those moments look like. I know it's kind of happening here and there, but I, I don't think it's really become like as widespread as like really hyper media creators like, you know, think it is quite yet. I always like to say that like, like I'm pretty sure my mom doesn't care about like what Elon Musk said on Clubhouse. Like, but someday when Martha Stewart does a Clubhouse, like, you know, and reveals some incredible like story, like, you know, there will be something that will be created and you know, she'll be able to read about that like in whatever channel she consumes it on. Yeah, I think so. I mean, even even something like um you know, the beginning of this conversation when you're talking through working for the widow of Hunter S. Thompson, you can imagine just getting the transcript of that and making that into a single blog post that you have on, you know, an undiscovered fact about me. A million, a million times over. It's so funny because like, that's why I'm in retrospect, so grateful for that opportunity because it made me value or really understand without having gone to college for journalism or anything like that, like, or wanting to, you know, work a beat as like a, you know, AP writer or something like it made me really understand the value of how moments that are created in conversation or whatever are content that can have forms, a written shelf life and, you know, exist in all these formats that the medium of it is interchangeable, you know? And I think that that is like a, I think that that's something that when people really start to think about that and understand that, I think that gives them a new dimension. And that's something that like, I like, you know, I can't tell you how many people come to Bro Bible uh, and are like, hey, I want to do a podcast for you. And my answer is always like, you know, it's like, no, because like, what are you going to, do like you can make a podcast on your own you have the technology to do it if you're if but if you do know how to create newsworthy moments out of that and can cater that into something that is a viable always on you know asset to our organization then that's something totally different you know what i mean (laughs) yeah so agree yeah brandon thank you so much we have Two awesome questions that we use to close up these interviews. Um, I'm actually so excited <laughs> to ask you. Well, do you, want, do, you want to, do you want to do the first one or the second one? Okay, yeah. All right. So, Brandon, what is your favorite rom-com? Whoa! That is incredible. Whoa, that is such an incredible question. Oh, man. I need to think about that for a second. Take so, your time. Definitely, definitely a Matthew McConaughey one, an early Matthew McConaughey one. Oh my gosh, I'm blanking. No. <laughs> you guys asked me this question too quick. This is so hard. Is it How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days? Is that what you're talking about? How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. That's it. Yes. Where he's like the sports writer. That, yep, yep. Locked in. Is that final, final answer? answer? Locked in. Yeah, that's Locked it. Locked in. Woo! That is a Wait, solid, solid answer. I want to. I want to hear. I want to hear yours. All right, I love that, Brandon. You know what? No one's ever asked. You're us. the very first. No, I love that. You're the very first, man. That means you actually really care. Um, not that our, our old guests don't. Um, <laughs> so, uh, my favorite is gonna. I'm gonna have to go with 
Friends with benefits. Oh, nice. Good one. If you can count uh, about time as a rom-com, then I would go for that. But I don't think it is. Oh, my gosh. I don't think it is either. Is Friends, Friends with benefits, isn't Justin Timberlake... Isn't he like a writer for GQ or something like that? Like it yeah, is Yeah, it's like, like Justin Timberlake and Mila so Kunis. Yeah. He's like, it's just so <laughs> terrible. It's exactly what you need it to be. <laughs> See, I, I love the Matthew McConaughey rom-coms because like now he's like a serious, you know, he's such a serious yeah. actor. Like everybody, like, I don't think anybody really like sees him as a non-serious, no. you know, person. But there was like an era where there were like Matthew McConaughey jokes on late night, making yeah. fun of him for being just like very binary, like rom-com guy. That was like his <laughs> thing. <laughs> Anthony, what's yours? Yeah, I, it's, it's a tough one. There's a lot, but I, I do just have to go back to the classic that is love actually. I've watched it like every year around Christmas time. And that, uh... that's my... You're such a romantic, Anthony. I, do, I, I, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I, used I, to, know. I, used to, I used to love Love, actually. But then I, like, rewatched it, like, years ago. And the cringe was so hard. Like, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> I, I think that's a benefit, you know? It's like you predict the cringe. You go in there for the cringe. Yeah. I think, you know, what is it Richard Curtis who wrote that? Is yeah, he the same guy yeah. that wrote Four Weddings at a Funeral, About a Boy, yes. Notting Hill? So that all was like them. all of them are like I would I would easily interchange one of them with love actually, but I think Notting Hill. Reason, if, if you're gonna Notting Hill, Notting Hill is the best of those. I was this close to saying Notting Hill actually, but love actually maybe because of like I think about Christmas time, and if you think about like the sentimental stuff around Christmas, that I thought about that. But Notting Hill is a very yeah. very close one. So, so like final answer, Anthony. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll you know I, these this might evolve over time, but I'm gonna say love actually. So now, oh, yeah. I love the, it. the less important <laughs> question, but we'll still have to go through this one, Brandon, is a more serious question. Now, if you were sitting across the table from your 18-year-old self, what would you say to him? Ooh, that is a great question. I would say, I would say, don't stress out. Like, I, I would, I think that's like a, I think that's like a thing because like, just don't stress out. Like, you know, that's always kind of been my attitude towards life, but don't stress out, be chill, whatever. Because it's so easy to, when you're in, you have your blinders on of building something in the day-to-day -day mode to just not to lose perspective of like, what's really important. And like, how you know the rocky road that you're on is not really like it's just like it's unique to you but it's not unique to life does that make sense like you know and and that to me i think is something that is so easy to get trapped in when you're like building when you're in a startup environment you know when things are really lean because that like you just have to remember that like they're like people have been through a lot worse, you know, and like perspective, I think is the most important thing that people can, you know, have on their, on their table. And at the end of the day, like, dude, bro Bible exists to make people laugh and provide a fun, you know, viewpoint of the world and be the spark of some conversation. 
you know, I am not here to like, you know, uh, like provide to do brain surgery or anything like that. Like, you know what I mean? And just, but, but there are those moments that happen where you get really stressed out about things and you lose perspective and you don't see the forest through the trees. And I think if you could, if I could go back and just remain, like, just, just remind myself to stay calm in those moments, I think that's the most valuable thing that you can do. And with, with wisdom comes that, or with, you know, as time goes on and with wisdom, you know, that perspective is easier to maintain. Well, that is a wonderful, that's wonderful a, place for us to close. Thank you for that. And a brilliant answer. Like, just awesome. Thanks, guys. This was really, really fun.